from the latest on Caribbean cruises to kosher safaris, pilgrimages to Jewish Eastern Europe and award-winning wines and international cuisine in sun-drenched Tel Aviv. Sit back and enjoy the trip with the travel edition of the Jerusalem Post podcast. When we say a very warm welcome, we're normally meaning, you know, hope you're here, having a great time, enjoying listening. But considering that it's almost Christmas or almost Hanukkah, we're in T-shirts and I really I should be in shorts. Not with your legs. Thank you very much. And the sun is up. People are strolling because we're in one of those cities where people just stroll and eat. For this podcast, we've come to the beautiful northeast coast of Spain and the amazing city of Barcelona. Uh, neither of us actually been here before, so we're, we're saying amazing and haven't gone beyond our hotel, but everything we've read, everything we've seen, videos, books and so on about this amazing city is, well, it's all summed up in where we're standing now, I think, in yeah, many ways. Yeah, we were having a coffee in the hotel and we looked out of the window and there's a, a mosaic here. And as you get closer to the mosaic, you see it's made of people's photographs, people having fun. But when you take a step back, or two steps back, the photographs are arranged to make a beautiful picture of two people kissing. This is very close-up kissing. It's sort of massive, massive lips that take an entire wall. And we're looking at a wall that's, what, 15 feet high? by almost double that in width. The whole thing is photographs that were sent to the artist. The artist is Joanne Fontcuberta. And everybody donated these photographs, members of the public. This was created to celebrate the tricentenary of the city. What are we going to be doing over the next couple of days, Mark? Over the next couple of days, we're going to go sports crazy by visiting the first or second most famous icon of Barcelona, depending on your viewpoint, uh, the Camp Nou Stadium. What's the other one? It would be La Sagrada Familia, but we'll wait until it's finished in 20, <laughs> 30, 40. It's, they've been building it for over 100 years. So we're doing football or soccer, we're doing food. Food. Of we course. are going to go to a kosher Michelin-starred restaurant, and there are not many of those in the world. That's absolutely incredible. I wonder what type of food. Presumably not mussels and octopus. Uh, ham, I believe. <laughs> um, Barcelona is famous for its architecture, and particularly Anton Gaudi, and we'll be going to the La Pedrera experience. And there's, of course, a very rich Jewish history to this city, and everywhere we go, we try to bring you, given that this is the Jerusalem Post, those highlights. So we'll be meeting one of the heads of the Jewish community today, and then we will be going deep, deep into the medieval past of the Jewish community of this city. And because this is the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition, it wouldn't be complete without a quiz. You're going to ask the questions because I can't remember them, and you have a memory of an elephant. Oh, at least it's the memory and not the face or body of an elephant. Okay, here we go. Question number one. Barcelona is in the region of Catalonia, but who wrote homage to Catalonia? And question number two, Mark. Question number two. Barcelona is famous for hosting the Olympics in 1992 and some really iconic images from the diving. Who performed the theme tune to the 1992 Barcelona Olympics? We're off to discover a lot more about the city, which we're going to share with you. The answers to the questions at the end of the podcast. (laughs) 
nestled between the Palau Blaugrana, which is a arena for basketball and handball, and the Barca store. We stand here ready to go in to see. Well, the Barca store makes me think that we're going to buy Barca's, but what are Barca's? Barca's are people that can't be bothered to spell out FC Barcelona. Which is the arguably one of the two I was three biggest sports teams, not just the football team, but sports teams in the world. In the world. Let's just say, we'll say it one time so you know, for the next few minutes when we say football, we're referring to the spherical object that is kicked in the game that some of you call soccer. We're going to be doing a tour of the museum and the Camp Nou experience, which will involve hopefully going around the stadium and being a player for the day. Well, we get to kick balls and stuff. Well, we get to drive a Ferrari ah. and have model girlfriends oh, and see. earn about half a million pound a week. A week. Chance would be a fine thing. What would you do if somebody said, for kicking a ball around a field, you could get $100,000 a week? What would you do with the $100,000 a week? Uh, what would I say or what would I do? What would you do? What would, what you would do? I do with $100,000 a week? I'd work for... A couple of weeks, and then I'd say, thank you very much, but I prefer podcasting with my good friend, David Harris. Oh, we're off to meet our tour guide, Tanya. In the first floor of the museum, we have three different corridors. In the first one, you will find all the trophies that we ever won since the club was founded in 1899 till nowadays. And we also have six different tables where you can see the whole history of our club and different objects so we can see the evolution of football here in our club. In the middle corridor, in the heart of the museum, we have the five Champions Cup trophies that we own. And also in here, we have a spot for Messi. He's not playing with us anymore, but he won those trophies while he was in here. Hang on a minute. Who, who's Messi? <laughs> who, who's this person? Yeah, he's the best player he in the world. No. He's a Portuguese player who played for Juventus and Real Madrid. <laughs> I don't I've think so. Of, I've heard of him. No. We still love him. He's not playing with us anymore. But in here, we have a corner just for him. He's the only player who's not retired at all and has his own corner inside the museum. So we can find the six golden balls and the six golden boots. And also Football Club Barcelona, it's not just a football team. We have five other professional teams. The women's team who are amazing. We have basketball, handball, futsal and hockey. So in the last corridor, we can find all the trophies for the other professional sports that we own in here. The last one, we have all the trophies from all the categories. The, all the trophies that they won the last year from all the categories, the six professional sports that we own in here. Also here we have a spot just for Johan Cruyff. He was an amazing coach and player for us here in Barcelona and he's the one who set the basis of our style nowadays. And on top we have another floor. It's like a multimedia space. You can find a big screen with the best moments of La Liga, La Champions and some Clásicos. It's also explained what's La Masia. As you know, we have an academy, so all the kids are playing the same way our first team is. So when they are coming to the first team, the adaptation of them to the first team, it's amazing. Like 2009, it's the greatest example. We have Guardiola, who was a kid in La Masia as our manager. And then we have Xavi, Iniesta, Puyol, Messi, Piqué, Busquets. All the kids from La Masia arrived to the first team. So. We won the six titles. For those of you who don't follow football, the names that Tanya just rolled off probably are, are amongst the greatest living footballers and have 
rewritten the way football is played. Yes. And also at the end of the second floor, we have like a model of how our stadium will look like in the future. We want to reveal this stadium that we are nowadays. It's pretty complicated because we are still open every single day of the year and to relocate all these persons that are coming, all the members to another stadium, it's pretty difficult. So that's why we don't know when we will start or finish. But we have this project to rebuild our stadium. How many people can sit in the stadium at the moment? It's 99,000 persons. Wow. It's the biggest stadium in Europe and the third one in the world. We have Maracaná and Azteca in front mm. of us. And how big will the new stadium be? 105,000. Come down to the pitch. I'm standing in the technical area. Can you name some of the legends of, of the club that have stood on this hallowed turf well, that we're on now? We can start from Messi because he was amazing. Ronaldinho, Eto, Xavi, Iniesta, Puyol, the kids from La Masia were amazing. I remember Rivaldo for me was amazing as well. I loved him when I was a kid. It was marvelous watching him playing in here. I don't know, I can tell you a lot of great names because this is a huge club and we had, fortunately, we have a lot of great players. Have you ever had any American players here? Well, now we have Serginho Des and I think he's the only one I can remind of. And any Israeli players? Oh, if we had any player from Israel, I cannot remember him. I'm sorry, but maybe you. you are you a player? I, no, I'm not a player, but I do remember when, when my son was about eight, he went to see a training game at Manchester City mm -hmm. and they had an Israeli player called Guy Asulin and okay. he'd come from Barcelona to Manchester City ah, of La Masia. So you got me. Ah. Yes. No, 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 but I'm just wondering if anybody actually made it to the first team I don't know and to how, stand here. how long it was ago. Remember that I'm not that old, but <laughs> I cannot remember. I'm going to start sorry. training because in a few years, despite the fact I'm over 35, Okay. I, I want to stand here one day. This yeah, is... go for it. This is a tremendous stadium. It's it's a bowl. You can imagine the intensity and the passion of the fans being so close and how difficult it must be. Maybe not this season, but traditionally how difficult it must be for the opposition teams to play here. Describe for us, from your perspective, you've told us you, you were born into this club. Yes. What's it like on match day for you? Well, for me, it's amazing. I'm still shivering every time I'm coming to the stadium. I really enjoy to come in here. It's true that you cannot hear like all the people uh, singing our songs because a lot of them are from outside of Barcelona. We have a lot of tourism in here, but it's pretty amazing to enjoy a game in here, all the people screaming, and we had a lot of good years and having Messi here as well. It's amazing. I cannot describe it with one word because it's too much. I don't know. I don't know how to say it, but it's amazing. It's one of the best experiences ever. Over there, there are three tiers of this stadium, this enormous stadium. And I'm looking at the top tier yeah. and then you have maybe 30, 40 rows up there. Have you ever sat at the top? Yes, actually my seats are on top of the stadium. Okay. So I'm seeing every single football game from the top of the stadium. And I think like to see the football game, it's pretty amazing. You cannot see the players close to you, but you can see a real football game, like how they are passing the ball one through the other. It's amazing the perspective you get to see a good football game. 
it's true that you cannot see the players close to you, but to see like the tactics and everything, it's amazing. You're listening to the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition with Mark Gordon and myself, David Harris. A little bit later in this podcast, Mark will be heading to a, a restaurant with a difference because it's both kosher and a Michelin-starred restaurant. There are around two dozen Michelin-starred restaurants in Barcelona. In the old city, just around the corner from the cathedral, is the Hotel Neri, and within it is the A restaurant. For those of you who are happy um, to eat perhaps vegetarian or vegan in a non-kosher restaurant, um, the quality of food here is quite superb. We've been given a glimpse into the menu, we've been talking to some of the staff. The menu is wide and varied, but in terms of vegetarian and vegan options, first of all, the bread selection is quite phenomenal with a variety of focaccias and truscos with Provencal herbs and tomato pesto, traditional country bread with seaweed butter, and then you get onto some of the, the mains, uh, which include a beautifully presented carrot curry with honey, pumpkin puree and crispy wild rice. We've decanted from our table overlooking a really interesting square in the Gothic Quarter. From the window you can see some of the old buildings, complete with bullet holes from wars gone by. And we've been invited up to the bar by the bar manager, Eduardo, who is going to make for us one of his special cocktails. Eduardo, what are you making? Well, what I'm making is uh, the signature cocktail, sinner or winner exclusively to Hotel Neri, a restaurant in Relais Chateau in Barcelona. What are you going to put into that cocktail? The um, Chanel number no. 5 of the gins, that is actually the G-Vine. And the G-Vine is actually one of the best gins in the world. It's like a perfume, actually. That is the main spirit. And what's going to accompany that? Alongside with the G-Vine gin, for the senior and winner, I mix the lime juice, the egg white, and I will show you how to make this French technique to take this egg white out like properly and one of the best liquors in the world elderflower French and it is Saint Germain we'll see it will be served in a martini glass and it will be dry shake and then shake normally with love Eduardo has taken the egg white out of the top of the egg by pouring it I'm just sat watching a, a real artisan at work here in terms of cocktail bars or hotel cocktail bars, we are really artisans because we know exactly what to do and when to do. And unfortunately for David, thanks to COVID, I won't be able to share this wonderful cocktail with him so he can watch me drink it. Uh, to finish, we add just a little bit of rich sugar and the giant basil. Does it bother you to share your secrets with the audience? Not at all. What I really want to do is to spread all over our recipes, our techniques, and what I love to do. You're a young man, and in your lifetime, bartending has developed in so many ways. When we were kids, a bartender poured a beer, maybe a glass of wine that have a house red, a house white. 
how do you pick all of this up? Are there universities for bartending? Is it something you develop yourself? Where does it come from? You need to understand that bartending and the love to drinks and the love to mix drinks, it's definitely a must. But there's another factors that are really important. How to make people happy? Because bartenders or the real bartenders have to, must make at least one guest happy at least five seconds. Well, I'm getting happy by the minute watching my cocktail. I'll tell you all about it, David, when I have it. We did the dry shake to mix the elements properly first, and now we normally shake, all right? A great cocktail should be a temptation to your palate, to your soul. And a great cocktail should be like a Michelin star dish. Very balanced, great product, so much love in the process. And could be, or must be, visually attractive. All of my creations, as always, everything to do with sensations, traveling, adventures, but most of all, try to make my mark into people's hearts and soul and palate. Can't wait. This is the best sound in the world, ever. I would argue it's potentially the second best. The first best is, here you go, sir. Here's your cocktail. Oh, look at that. That is sensational. It's frothy and white. You can see the two layers, you know. And the egg white just bring two things. Density and body to the cocktail. We are going to taste the sinner or winner. Oh, the zest in that is beautiful. That is so good. COVID regulations. I remember the morning of my bar mitzvah. My mother made me drink an egg, raw egg with cinnamon to lubricate my throat. And as disgusting as it sounds, it absolutely worked. And what I would say with this dish is that the egg white really makes the cocktail and the zest. That sort of lemony, citrusy taste, it's great. And I said to Eduardo before he made a cocktail that I like something where the taste stays with me afterwards. That's my sign of good food. This does it. Eduardo, you are a genius. Thank you very, very much. I'm uh, Victor Sorensen. I'm the director of the APJ, the European Association for the Promotion of Jewish Heritage, and also I'm a co-founder of the Jewish cultural platform, Mosaica. We are currently, I guess you would say, on the roof of a building that dates back potentially a thousand years. Can you explain where we are and why we're here? We are in Casa Dret, uh, the oldest inhabited house in uh, the whole city of Barcelona. We are located in the middle of the old Jewish neighborhood of Barcelona called El Cai. And thanks to the research and the documents founded in the archive of the Cathedral of Barcelona, we know nowadays that this building uh, was property of a merchant Jew called Astruc Adret, a Jew from Cervera, a little town here in Catalonia. From what we know, from what the information that uh, we, we manage, uh, we know that he was a, a wealthy man uh, with a property in the 
main street of Jewish neighborhood. He was renting his house. We are we just been in a, in his a small and beautiful patio. We also know that uh, unfortunately he was forced to convert to Christianity and also to sell his uh, property. That happened in 1391 when there was a pogrom in all the peninsula that reached this northern area, actually destroyed the Jewish community of uh, Barcelona 100 years before the edict of expulsion. From then, it was a private house until the, the 19th century. Thanks to the newspapers of that uh, period, we knew that uh, it was a school of music, then a funeral house, then a brothel, and finally a Catalan politician bought this house, Andreu Masculei, that he's married with a Jewish woman from Chile, Esther Silverstein, and they make this beautiful renovation with two eminent architects uh, in Spain, Elias uh, Torres and Martinez uh, La Peña. And this is how it looks. It has this very unique medieval touch. David and I are having coffee at the moment with Victor. We've walked around the building, we've been on the rooftop. Can you recap what goes on in this building on a regular day or a regular month? Because every floor there seems to be something different, something fascinating. What do you do here and what happens in this building? This building nowadays it's a kind of Jewish cultural center and Jewish hub. First, we found uh, different institutions working in the field of the promotion of Jewish culture and, and heritage, sharing this space. For example, this European Association for the Promotion of Jewish Heritage, the Jewish Film Festival of Barcelona, the, the Union of Jewish Students, and uh, Mosaica, this cultural platform that is basically running the, the project. In uh, Mosaica, uh, that it's acting as a kind of platform, uh, we found many different projects. One of them is a cultural agenda. Every week we can find here concerts, uh, conferences, guided tours of the old Jewish neighborhood, and also about the Jewish presence in the 20th century here in, in Barcelona. Also, different projects are, are meeting here. So we have this project of research with the Cathedral of uh, Barcelona. We have the Salam Shalom initiative, the Jewish Book Festival. We have a nice young uh, <laughs> cultural project in, in our hands and we are very excited. Uh, we started just uh, three years ago, so everything is pretty new. I don't know if listeners can hear, but in the background as we're talking, the cathedral's bells are, are ringing out. You've mentioned the cathedral a couple of times in a very positive way, talking about the collaboration and so on. But to what, to what extent is it almost difficult for you to be running a Jewish cultural organization that is trying to explain the history and, and keep the memories alive in the shadow, literally in the shadow of the cathedral, which for so many people represents a very negative period in history. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, I will say that Jews, especially in the Middle Ages, they were always in the shadow of the cathedral or, or the church. For us, it's important because in some way it's an invitation to confront uh, different narratives and to confront the historical narratives and we think also that it's time to think about the future. Having the opportunity to work with the archive of the cathedral and just to share with them but also to debate and discuss with them how our shared history is explained, it's fascinating, especially because 
we think about heritage as a kind of laboratory, no? The thing is to explore the past. We are not going to hide the darkest parts of the history. It's not that the cathedral is saying, no, there was no inquisition. No, no, we need to acknowledge all that, but we need to look to the future and we need to explore what's the meaning of our these places and this neighborhood nowadays in Barcelona in the year 2021 looking to the past in order to project a better future for our communities. If I'm preparing to come to Barcelona on a trip, how do I find out what's going on in this wonderful building? Do I just rock up and knock on the door and say, hi, Victor, can I come in? Who can come here? Is it open to everybody to come? And It's open to everybody. Our projects, and actually I would say also all the institutions that are working here, are trying to, to create bounds and to, to participate in the social and cultural fabric of our city. So we are targeting especially non-Jewish audience. There's a need to explain this history that is still very unknown, the history of the Middle Ages, the history of the 20th century, actually also the Jewish presence right now. So from different perspectives and through different projects, also from the APJ, we are developing these roots of Jewish heritage all along uh, Europe, in Barcelona as well. And what we found is that the cultural center is offering cultural activities uh, all the time. If it's you, uh, you can come and say, hi, Victor, at any time. <laughs> That's for sure. Any guest is welcome. Any guest that uh, is interested in exploring a bit of history and also this question of what it means to be a Jewish person in Barcelona nowadays. So how do people get in touch with you? through our social media, through the websites, the uh, website of the APJ where you can find all those projects with this particular approach to heritage. It's jewishheritage.org. For the local activities, you can look at mosaica.es. Just to spell that website, it's M-O-Z-A-I-K-A dot E-S. Victor, thank you so much for your hospitality, for your time, and more importantly, for the work that you are doing for all of us. Oh, thanks for you for, for coming. It was a, such a nice pleasure to have you here and talk to you. Barcelona Fact File. Barcelona's main airport, El Prat, is the main international gateway to Barcelona and the second busiest airport in Spain. It's a hub for Vueling and Level and a focus city for Air Europa, EasyJet, Norwegian Air Shuttle and Ryanair. There are five weekly direct flights from Tel Aviv, while there are flights to 10 UK destinations. It also has two direct flight connections with New York, operated by Delta and United, with Miami via American Airlines. From March 2022, there'll be a direct flight to Montreal. Girona Airport is located some 45 miles northeast of Barcelona, with a majority of flights from Ryanair. Getting from El Prat to the city centre of Barcelona takes about 40 minutes by train or bus and 30 minutes by car. From Girona Airport to downtown Barcelona takes some 75 minutes by train or car. Barcelona offers buses, taxis and taxi apps. Barcelona has around 470 hotels with more than 200 four-star hotels and 40 five-star hotels. Barcelona also offers more than 300 hostels and bed and breakfasts. One US dollar will buy you 0.87 euros. 
The average annual temperature is 21 degrees Celsius or 70 degrees Fahrenheit during the day and 15 degrees Celsius or 59 Fahrenheit at night. January is the coldest month with August the warmest. Large fluctuations in the temperature are very rare. While there's international food aplenty, local gastronomy is based on restaurants supplied by their own local providers. There's a wide range of typical dishes that can be found year-round. However, some of them are related to events and holidays being only available during their season, such as panelettes in autumn and La Mona at Easter. Barcelona has 22 Michelin star restaurants, two of them with three stars. It's All Saints Day here in Barcelona, the sound of church bells behind us. What better time to do a tour of the Jewish quarter of Barcelona? Uh, we've just walked past a mezuzah, uh, a stone with Hebrew on it, and we're with our wonderful tour guide, Christina. Can you tell us about where we're standing now? Sure. We're standing right in the middle of the old Jewish quarter of Barcelona and the old Cal. Yes, the major Cal. Cal is the word we use for Jewish quarter in Catalan, coming from Latin, from streets. Barcelona is one of the few cities in Europe that has actually two Cal's, the major and the lesser Cal. Back in the days, it was the biggest Jewish community of Aragon. We spoke to uh, Victor earlier, and he was talking about there was a large gap between when the Jews were expelled and killed in a pogrom in Barcelona in 1391 and the community returned early 20th century. The buildings around us, they look much, much older than the early 20th century, so I assume they date back to before 1391. Some of the buildings around us are old, like uh, the Jewish Museum we're going to visit, which was actually the former house of a veil maker. But the rest of apartment buildings date back from the 1700s and 1800s in general. So the type of small apartments we see here. That is how it's so difficult to reconstruct the Jewish history. So we have some documents. We know approximately where synagogues, where temples used to be, where Hegdesh, for instance, used to be. But we don't know that much because of this gap and because of the massive uh, new buildings built in the old Jewish quarter of Barcelona. The community that returned were, was, was not the same community. Those people who were here in the 1300s and were forced to convert or they went on exile to many different countries, they didn't come back. In general, the ones who came were people from South America, from Eastern Europe, so other parts of Europe now too. But that community was unfortunately lost, except for some, some, some families, very brave, that would continue practicing Judaism in secret. Obviously, that was a minority and that was a risk danger, especially during the Inquisition of Spain in the late 1400s until the 1800s. The streets that surround us are a lot of them named after saints. To my left is a Carrer Adret, named after a rabbi. How long has that street been called Carrer Adret and did it have a previous name of a saint? Most of the streets that surround us have names of saints. They were changed. The Christians, the Catholics changed those to really erase any footprints of the Jewish community here. Salomo Benadret Street, a rabbi of Barcelona, that name is very new since November 2018. 
before that was San Domenic del Cal, which is basically making reference to the program of August 1391. It was the day of San Domenic where hundreds of Jews were killed in Barcelona. First of all, we should give a plug for your company, your own company, which is Oh My Guide, and in a minute you can tell us how people can find you. But you told us before we were recording that from the age of 16 you developed an interest in Judaism. How did that come about? It's so funny. I think it was because of my Catholic background. More than I was raised Catholic, I should say I went to a Catholic school and because of the way religion and religions uh, were taught at that moment, I was very curious and I said there must be something else. I actually had the pleasure of meeting a Jewish friends when I was 16 and so she was introducing me to the culture of Judaism. And later on, I traveled a lot and, you know, most people go to Rome to see the Vatican. I did as well, but I wanted to see the Jewish quarter. When I became a guide, immediately after having my license to tour and to give tours, I also took part of Rasgo courses, which were basically telling you about the Jewish quarters in Catalonia. So that's why the last part of all this interest has been last year creating the Jewish Barcelona tour. Because I think that's, that's really missing. Most locals don't even know that we are right now in the old Jewish quarter. I have no idea. How can they know if we are all surrounded by saints' names, the streets, there's nothing left. So I thought that it would be really interesting to first tell locals about that and then obviously tell visitors about the Jewish culture. If you want to reach me, yeah, I'm Christina. My company's name is Oh My Guide and the website is ohmyguidebarcelona.com. I bet when you heard Christina giving out her website that that was it, that we'd finished with her. That was only the first half of our talk because first of all, Christina is amazing, but also there's so much to see and understand in a small area. And it has to be said, because quite often Mark and I travel without a guide, but in a place like this area, without a guide, it's actually very, very difficult. So first, tell us a little bit about the museum that you had opened for us. So the museum belongs to MUBA, which is uh, the Museum of History of Barcelona that has many historical sites, such as the Roman Neocropolis, such as the History Museum of Barcelona, and the Jewish Museum as well, the Centra d'Interpretació del Call, which is not exactly a museum but an interpretation center for the Jewish quarter. So necessary because you walk through the streets of Barcelona and there's practically no signs. For instance, we are standing now by the coat of arms of the Inquisition and there's nothing here. If you don't know, you just walk by and say, oh, what a beautiful museum, right? The museum yeah, of Frederic Marès, but you have no idea what's here, which is a coat of arms that indicated the place by the king's palace where tortures were performed, where trials were performed as well, and where many, many people were converted by force, tortured to death as well. You mentioned the king's palace. We walked past another MUBA site, which looked really, really big, but the square itself had a very modern floor, What's at that particular site? King's Square is one of those places in Barcelona, like many that have been changing depending on what has happened, especially in the 20th century. 
But the early 1900s, they found some really good excavations of the old colony of Barquino. So they started excavating that square where we have been standing on, and they opened a museum of history. One part is very ancient, 2,000 years old, is the Roman excavations, and the last part is the King's Palace, including the King's Chapel, St. Agatha, which was built in early 1300s, and Salo del Tinel, restored in 1350s where one of the most important rabbis in the kingdom of Aragon, who lived in Girona, came in the 1200s to give his arguments pro-Judaism, where San Ramon de Peñafort, a Catholic priest, would give his own arguments for Catholicism. As you can imagine, that was not really a fair conference at all. We're talking there about Nachmanides and the disputations. I sort of hate that very often our final question in interviews is kind of negative. But you've said we're underneath the sign of the Inquisition outside the palace where Nachmanides basically had to flee because his dispute was never going to be accepted. You're a Spanish woman from a Spanish family. I'm sure you can trace your roots back certainly several generations. How do you feel, especially as we've been chatting, you've also said there is still left-wing anti-Semitism around in this country. You're doing something in your work to, to counter that. And it's very much appreciated. But how do you feel about the way the city is presented or the way the Jewish story of the city is presented? I feel that in the, I've been guiding for the last 16 and a half years and there's a big change. When I started being a guide, you know, 16 years ago, and that was totally different. I was uh, not so much known. And now institutions, even the city council of both Barcelona and Girona have done a lot. They opened this museum. There's much more interest. Even people who don't know anything about Judaism, but they would come to a tour like Jewish Barcelona with Oh My Guide because they are interested in it. That's the first step. And I'm so happy this is changing. And also, many fiction series have, uh, you know, made people more interested in Judaism. They know about the Netflix series. This is so good because there is anti-Semitism, yes, unfortunately, but it's a minority. The rest of people are just ignorant. Because, you know, when they were little, that was nothing told in school. So, and because we are still surrounded by a majority of Catholicism, if not like practicing, but still like the country, even if it's not, and it's a confessional, so there is no religion, but many of the people still, you know, celebrate the Catholic days. So I think it's more like the ignorance, which is also changing, which is good. So there are people that have nothing to do with Judaism, but are now interested in. They are also traveling to Jerusalem. So more and more people, especially young people, which is good. I try to be optimistic. That's good. So you also do tours of the fabulous book Shadow of the Wind, which if I have time I want to come back for. But in the meantime, thank you very much, Christina, from Oh My Guide. Thank you so much. This is the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition with Mark Gordon and David Harris. Well, that was a jolly old afternoon and evening. I am absolutely bushed, as we used to say in the old country. All those stairs. Hang on a second, hang on a bit. Before we tell everybody about the eight flights of steps that we just climbed up, we have been sitting most of the afternoon on a bus. 
Yes, a good two-hour circuit. We took the tourist bus around Barcelona to try and cram in all of the sites. We're only here for 48 hours, so we're trying to see as much as we possibly could. I'm still very... I don't know if ambivalence is the right word, but I'm still never quite sure about whether to take a city bus or not, because you never quite know what the route's going to be like, how the traffic's going to be. So what did you think of the Barcelona bus experience? I think given the short amount of time we had, if you want to cram in all those box-ticking sites of Barcelona, I think it's a very good way to do it. You get to say, I saw La Sagrada Familia and I took the pictures. We saw La Sagrada Familia for all of about 60 seconds at a bus stop. Yes. And we didn't go in, but then again, we hadn't booked ahead of time, which is our own fault, you know. We went past camp now. I mean, we were lucky to do that as part of our itinerary. But again, if you don't have time to do it, you can say, I've seen the Camp Now Stadium. And we got also quite a lot of glimpses of the places where people live around this city and not necessarily just staying around the centre. So it was a two-hour trip. It was interesting. I wouldn't say it was dynamite, but it was certainly something that you should consider if you're going to a new town rather than saying, you know, I have to go to one particular place. If you hop on these bus tours, you can see quite a lot in a short space of time. There were two phrases that were said over and over again. Anton Gaudi and UNESCO World Heritage Site. And quite often those two were interconnected. I think everything that Gaudi did in the city is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. I think the public toilets where he visited once, <laughs> they're now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And as you said earlier, the place where the tram hit him and killed him in 1926 should also be a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Joking aside, we spent the evening at Casa Mia, which is also known as La Pedrera, which is a Gaudi light show and a chance to walk around one of his projects, uh, a major project that he worked on for, I think, eight years. We're right in the heart of downtown Barcelona, one of the main shopping streets. In fact, around the corner from where we are now, there's Chanel and... Bulgari, Dior, Zadig and Voltaire. It, it's the Champs-Élysées of Barcelona, and right in the heart of it is this bizarre, bizarre building. It's seven stories high, plus uh, uh, an attic. Do you want to describe the attic? The attic was like being inside a whale. It had this yeah. herringbone structure all the way around. That was superb. For me, that was incredible. And, and that's all made from brick. The outside of the building is all stone. We had a sound and light show on the roof. Which was projected onto some of the sculptures that Gaudi had put on the roof to, to be the, the stairwells and the ventilation shafts and the chimneys. Most of them covered in Gaudi's signature style tiling, broken tiles to make a mosaic. If you're scared of heights, as I am, I strongly suggest think twice about doing it. But if you appreciate architecture, certainly weird early 20th century architecture, uh, which apparently the owners of this building did not like, but then it is worth definitely spending an hour or two here. They liked it so much they took Gaudi to court, <laughs> but lost. I say it's a unique building, there's another one three doors down, but this was Gaudi's last residential project. I think I'm going to go off to have a look at some of the nightlife, and I imagine you being the old man are off to sleep. Well, I might get some food. I'm sick of your company. I might, <laughs> I, I, might, I might go back to the hotel, get a bit of food and get some sleep while you get those gifts in. I've got a whole day to do that tomorrow and, and have a nice bit of lunch. 
So, to finish off this tour of Barcelona, I am now going to fill my face at the unique kosher Michelin-starred restaurant of Barcelona called Jerta. Now, Jerta is a village outside of Barcelona towards the Delta, and the chef here, Fran, opened a restaurant in 2006 in the Delta and received a Michelin star in 2009. And he was the youngest chef in Spain to receive a Michelin star. And for those people listening in Israel, we're still waiting for our first Michelin star. Asaf Granit has one in Paris. One of the unique things about coming to Barcelona is you get to eat kosher Michelin star food. Not Michelin star quality, it is actually Michelin star food. The wine is sourced by the sommelier here. Jeter itself is not a kosher restaurant. There is a regular restaurant, there is a tapas bar here, and it's important to note that if you want to eat kosher food at Jerta, you either have to come with a party or book in advance. I think even if you come with a party, you have to book in advance because the restaurant has to organize for the kashrut supervisor to come when the food is prepared to make sure that everything is up to kosher standard. So it's important to note you do have to book in advance. Jerta in Barcelona was opened as I suppose a tribute to the original restaurant which is still open and if you want to go to Jerta you can go to the restaurant there but it opened and within six months it received a Michelin star they know what they're doing here fresh chef Fran Lopez is the fourth generation in the company who has been making food of the Delta region and I am now going to experience the best kosher food in Europe. However, you have to eat the kosher meal in a private dining room, a lovely private dining room, beautifully laid out. We are currently sitting on a table of six of us. The supervisor is here, but the rabbinate have insisted that kosher meals are served in a separate dining room. There is a separate kitchen but the meal also is served in a separate dining room. Sadly, David couldn't join me for lunch today. Not that he could have eaten some of this food because he's a vegetarian, but just to give you a recap of where I am. After two courses, I've had a lovely starter of four little bites made of sea bass, salmon, and two types of sardine. And now for my second course, I am partaking of some very lovely tuna with pine nuts in a carrot sauce. Really beautiful food, just so tasty. All accompanied with a lovely kosher wine from the area, from near Zaragoza, called Hallelujah, which is a white wine, just an amazing taste uh, made from the Maccabeo grape, which is quite a nice coincidence that a local grape is called Maccabeo. Xavi shares his name with a famous Barcelona footballer, but he is in fact the sommelier here. So he is an expert on all things wine, but knows a little bit more about the restaurant and the kosher food here. Welcome you here. Thank you. So how long has this restaurant been serving kosher food? More or less one year. The idea was to try and bring more, more customers to the restaurant, Jewish customers open a different sort of market for the restaurant. 
Yes, sir. What sort of food is served? Obviously, kosher food is different. We can't eat the ham and the some of the seafood that's served here. What specialities do they cook with? Our cuisine is from the south of Catalonia, from El Delta del Ebro. Our speciality are many fishes and seafood from the Delta del Ebro, many vegetables. And we have a little bit of fruit that another zone, but more or less our 60% than 60-70% than our products uh, we serve in our restaurant are from our zone. And the fruit is, is citrus? Citrus, now is the time of the artichoke, yeah. for example, a lot of vegetables. And finding high quality kosher wine to go with, with this menu, how did you go about that? At the starter, I need the Rabino's help because uh, I just three years ago, I work with kosher wines because there are many customers that like uh, kosher wines. When we start the kosher catering in Certa restaurant, I need the Rabino's help because I just know just one producer of the uh, kosher wine is Selle de Capsanes with the Pera Habib. The Rabinos give me many information about the wine kosher producers and I call them, I have many uh, interviews and we have now 8-10 reference that kosher wines are the regular, regular menu because we offer from the other customers, not just for the kosher customers, we serve the kosher wines. And they like it. Barcelona is famous for its cava as well. Do you have a kosher cava here? Yes, I have a kosher cava and we have a rosé champagne. Have you tried the kosher menu and do you have a favorite dish on that menu? Or does it change regularly, the menu? We change at that at because we work with seasonal product okay. and we change a continue. We're at the end of our meal. I have had another wonderful course with rice and morel mushrooms, or a local version of morel mushrooms, followed by a beautiful sea bass, you know, basil sauce. And for dessert, a very unique combination of carrot around coconut cream, served with a mango sauce, which was outstanding. Um, I'm finishing off another glass of the Hallelujah wine. We've had a very lovely red wine, and just finishing with coffees, I have to say, if you have any interest in the culinary aspect of Barcelona and you keep kosher, this is a must-see. It really is a fabulous restaurant. The service is amazing. The food is what you would expect from a Michelin-starred restaurant. But for those people that keep kosher, this is a unique opportunity to taste that food. Sitting on the Passage de Gracia, having one last coffee. How was your time in Barcelona? Very Catalan. What does that mean? So it's an interesting question because when I first thought of Barcelona, I assumed a very large old town. I don't, a very sort of Spanishy feel. But as I said to you a short while ago, as we were taking a, a bus around uh, the city, one of the sightseeing buses, 
it feels in many ways like a Paris. There are wide avenues. Mm, I didn't feel uh, like, apart from the few streets that we were on where the old Jewish quarter, the Gothic area was, I didn't feel that this was an old town. It offers plenty in terms of food, music, obviously the architecture, but it's certainly not what I was originally expecting. It certainly has some humour here. The fact that you have a road called Diagonal right. and a, a railway station or a metro station called Parallel mm-hmm. means that whoever's been naming things in the city <laughs> has got such a... No, I, I, I got a feeling it was a, there was a little bit of Jerusalem and a little bit of Tel Aviv in it. The old city and the, the Gothic quarter had that thousand-year-old-plus mm-hmm. feel to it. But then you walk a kilometre, two kilometres, and you find this bustling shopping community lots of modernist art lots of uh, architecture from people like Gaudi and and his disciples that that shape this city it's it's a very interesting contrast we've got a few thank yous to give out hand out uh, particularly to our tour guides then of course to two organizations to Marta at the Catalonia tourist board and to the lovely people at Barcelona Tourisme who have helped organise this trip for us. We also need to say a thank you once again to Royal Caribbean for getting us here and taking us home. And somehow leaving us with spacing our tummies to actually eat anything here <laughs> after three days of eating very well. As we always say as we draw to a close of uh, one of our podcasts, it's time for you to share, it's time for you to review and uh, just tell everybody that they should subscribe to this particular podcast we should finish off with our um, quiz answers oh yes i forgot about that go for it question number one was who wrote homage to catalonia david i i well i know but i'll pretend i don't i don't know well i was hoping you knew oh can't you remember no, of course <laughs> i can remember it's it's george orwell it's one of his lesser read books it's before. george orwell He's very well, thank you. Yeah. Well, he's dead, but, but yeah. one of his earlier books after Pier to Wigan. So mm-hmm. maybe we should go to Wigan Pier next for Absolutely. a holiday. Question number two was, who sang the thematic tune for the Barcelona Olympics in 1992? Barcelona. Me and, just now. And it does have a beautiful horizon. Yes, it does. It was sung by Freddie Mercury and, your go again, David. I can't, I can't say her name. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be drummed out of Barcelona <laughs> with your singing. Uh, Montserrat Caballé. Barcelona. And our coffee uh, have uh, just no, arrived. Our latest coffee has arrived. Yes. Oh, and a butter croissant. Lovely. But I think before, before we leave people too hungry and too thirsty, we should say a farewell from Barcelona. Thank you for having joined us on yet another of our trips. Don't know where we're headed next, but we'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. Adios. Is that what they say here? It's Spanish, so I, I don't do, know. I My do. Catalan Frere is not brilliant. Jacques, I have no idea. Buongiorno. Exactly. Thanks very much for joining us, and until the next time, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.